I started adding dynamics into my Carnotic scripts <laughs> or adding in Carnotic ideas and notes to myself in my Western scores. Even simple things like I would say to my mother, yeah, the Thordi Raga, which is a very, very traditional Carnotic Raga. Well, its plain notes are the Phrygian mode. Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by Nodas Collective. I am your host, Joe Chesterman March, and today we're having a conversation with Shruti Rajaseka. Now, Shruti is a composer from Minnesota, US, and she was the daughter, still is, of prominent Carnatic musician Nimala Rajaseka. That was her mum. And she's a really big deal in South Indian classical Carnatic music. I met Shruti at Safa's Composing for Eastern European Instrument Scheme last year or the year before, and we actually had a three-hour conversation for this podcast. Now, you'll be glad to hear that's edited down. We actually only recorded two of those three hours, but it was still a big chunk of editing, so I hope you enjoy the concise result. It was the most concise I could possibly get our conversation because it was just that much fun to record. Now, that Safa scheme was in the UK, so Shruti's also been studying at SOAS in London and RNCM up here in Manchester, which gave us a really good opportunity to talk about the differences in choral culture and education between the UK and the US. Uh, Shruti is also a really nice vocalist as well. We actually talked about how the pandemic is improving conversations around pieces in the rehearsal process. So Shruti finds that really important, having conversations about the context of the music because contemporary music just doesn't have that. You have to introduce the context. And we also get super into the weeds at the end, discussing conical and how Carnatic music doesn't change time signature, even though it's got all these insane cross rhythms and might be in quintuplets or dodecahedron tuplets. And I find it absolutely fascinating. I hope you do as well and how Shruti breaks those rules for her piece Numbers, which was recorded on the NMC label for their Young Composers Scheme album. I'm really grateful to NMC for allowing us to use a little excerpt of that piece at the very end of the podcast. So do check out their website or stream the piece if you want to hear the whole thing in full, which I would heavily recommend. The other thing I'd like to say before we get into it is that this episode of Classical Music Now is supported by Dorico. <laughs> which is a huge deal for us. They have been really generous in supporting the podcast and sponsoring the podcast. And I'm really thankful for them for doing that. Things like licensing music, it's not free. Things like buying recording equipment, it's not free. So I'm really glad that they've invested in us and believe in what we're doing here on the podcast. So it is supported by Dorico, the advanced music notation software from Steinberg. Dorico is designed to save you time, whether you're a composer or arranger, a teacher or a student, working in music engraving and publishing, or producing music for media, it gives you the tools to produce beautiful scores faster than any other tool, so you can spend less time in front of your computer and more time doing what you love, making music. Dorico is available in three versions, including Dorico SE, which is completely free to download and use. So check it out today at steinberg.net slash Dorico, or use the link in the description so that they know you're coming from us and that's a really great way for you to support the podcast. All right, let's get into it. This is Shruti Rajaseka, and we're talking about choirs. How do you find working with choirs? It seems like you've done a lot with choirs. Yeah, so that comes from my own vocal background, and that's sort of where I began performance. So 
probably because I was this Carnatic vocalist first before I was introduced to any kind of choral system. You know, I'm not from a Christian background. So the first time I heard choirs was really only in schools. Schools here in the U.S., almost all of them have, you know, music programs, especially in public schools that allow for, and by public, I mean sort of state schools um, that have, you know, choral programs and maybe orchestral and maybe band, depending on what the funding is. And it's a shame that it's not there in every single school, but I know that there are a lot of people who are working towards that goal. But it's a lot more than in the UK, is my understanding. Like I believe you don't have that same culture of school choir in every single school, would you say? This definitely doesn't sound like it's as mainstream, as widespread as it is in America. Yeah, for sure. You know, you kind of get the, the heroic conductor who does it out of the goodness of their heart in schools, mm. and, and the, they're always slightly legendary figures for that reason um, but it is usually being generous with their time as, a sp- as opposed to it being their their job yeah right and being a program and I mean when I say it's there in nearly every school in the U.S. I am definitely speaking from a place of privilege with that because even though I went to a state school it was one that was extremely well funded and that has to do with the way the local taxes work in this country which leads to a lot of inequality with not only housing but then the opportunities that are available in the schools so I should you know point that out when I talk about how widespread it is but it really is something very very specific to hear and it actually wasn't I didn't realize this wasn't the case in the UK for almost nine months like even I lived there for nine months and didn't even realize (laughs) maybe because I wasn't working with school children per se or or I, when I was working with students of that age, it was in other contexts, like, say, the National Youth Choirs. So it was only we were having a, a wonderful um, chance to do like a tour of Oxford University's music press. And one of the sort of leaders in the, the publishing department there was explaining the system that we have in the U.S. called the Allstate Choir System. And now this is like they have a pretty important relationship with these all-state choirs like OUP does. But when he was explaining the structure of the all-state choirs, which was something I was intimately you know, acquainted with having sung in all-state choirs when I was in secondary school, my British peers were just shocked at this idea of a process of, you know, the, the process of auditioning for the all-states is that they have representatives that come to each public school and then you go through this and what they were really surprised and public and private and you know whatever the schools are and what my British colleagues were surprised at was this idea that there are these strong choral departments in every school like (laughs) my public school which had um let's see my graduating class was about 850 students but the state school had maybe 400 500 in the choral department you know like it was it was that strong and it was that big a part of the life and so yeah it's possible to access choirs without having a christian or church background here quite easily i would say and i think that's very very powerful people are talking about right now what are the ways that we can sing and the ways of protecting these institutions given the current circumstances. And I think that that model of having it publicly available in that way is very, very powerful. But I also can see, having now lived in the UK for a bit, the strength of that church choral tradition being one that brings students up, you know, like through the system and and gives them a very, very intensive education, which is maybe not what you receive if you're, you know, just doing it through your school. But at the same time, I think, I think it gets to a question of access. 
you know? Hmm. And I don't think that my education was in any way compromised just because I was getting it for free. <laughs> it's interesting, like you say, that the choir system in the UK is so Christian. <laughs> it's so based <laughs> in, in Christian church music. And the songs that everyone knows, the music that everyone knows is sacred music that you could sing at a mass or something like that. Mm-hmm. And is it? I, I guess that the canon in the US must be this you know the one the song you can say oh do you know this song by Laurelson or do you know this by Whitaker and people would be like oh yeah yeah that's a, that's a tune that's a tune like it must be very you know we we sing those as well but and and sometimes uh I guess not in a no not in not in a church service but you know the same choir that sings mm. at the church will sing that uh, maybe at a concert at the end of the year or something um mm-hmm. but the majority of songs we know through virtue of being uh, a choir with a function are for mm-hmm. the, the Sunday service or something like that mm-hmm. and I think I mean you know I was really not familiar with the concept of even song before I moved to the UK I'd had some British conductors especially in college who were very formative in general with my choral education but certainly informed my decision of, of coming to the UK in this in this way and you were interested in the choir scene as well were you saying Yes, exactly. So um, because I had these British conductors, and I would also say that there's, I mean, in general, the US is like an Anglophile kind of place where we're just obsessed with all (laughs) things British. Um, (laughs) But definitely, I think, uh, musically, the aesthetics of the choral sounds that you would get in Britain and, and certain ensembles, especially, is very much idolized. And so I had conductors, even ones where I'm from in Minnesota, who, who introduced that sound to us. And it was something that we were very, very intrigued by. And I think that remains the case in terms of, you know, kind of even people we program here and such a lot of British composers, there's a lot of interest. And I mean, maybe part of that is that we've got the special relationship between the US and the UK. But I think there's culturally this, um, this craze, <laughs> kind of for, for, for music over in that lovely island. (laughs) But I I would say that I had, despite all of these sort of connections, never sung any sort of even song repertoire. I guess, I suppose I had done different sort of magnificats in concert, but not even understanding that that was sort of, that that was a category of music or the the nunc was a category or your anthems or whatnot. And just to give you an idea of how little entanglement I had with that, I have really not written any sacred repertoire. I would say that I have written a piece that's uh, using ideas of Christianity and Hinduism in sort of a German and Sanskrit piece. Mm. Those, those are the two languages used. But it doesn't. I haven't written any repertoire that's like for the Anglican <laughs> setting of a church uh, service. So I think that is very telling. And I think it's always interesting when people ask me for that repertoire. And I, I do think that that's something, it's a very beautiful category of music and something I would like to engage with but I don't actually have a cultural connection with that as much as I would sort of broader choral music and I think that's an interesting point to touch on in terms of the performers as well because in the school I went to we had a chapel choir so I'll just speak to my own experience because I'm struggling to generalize it here and it was a chapel choir and so we did even song maybe once a term so it wasn't it wasn't as regular but we also sang it the morning assembly type of thing as well. This was secondary school. Mm-hmm. And most of the, you know, most of the members of that weren't Christian. So that mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not as tightly woven as it might appear. Mm-hmm. But 
there's also the perspective of this is the tradition this is the step up if you want to kind of get into choral conducting and the other route would be amateur choirs um and and this certainly is speaking from experience at this point where you've got community choirs who can't necessarily read music and then you've got church choirs who can Mm. but it's a church choir and there's certainly um in in kind of the higher catholic tradition that there's a lot of there's a lot of things to know that aren't the music like what goes when like you say there's the magnificat there's the the nunc dimittis and at this point i know that the nunc dimittis comes after the magnificat i've i've sung that that, (laughs) i've sung enough of them at this point (laughs) but there's there's so much ritual and just knowledge Mm. involved that if you're not if you're not a catholic it's it's quite intimidating to even think that you belong in that setting and so I think from mm-hmm. that perspective, having a secular tradition has some real access advantages for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think one reason why, at least in the US, our perspective of music making in, in Britain and choral singing is that you're phenomenal sight readers. And like you, you're, you're right to make the distinction, I think, between sort of choral activity that happens in this way where it's like we've got to sing new material each week for services as opposed to choral activity that's working towards a concert and it might not be, you know, that kind of rapid sight reading necessary. So I definitely think you're right about the knowledge that's given that isn't on the page, (laughs) which is interesting given that there's so much emphasis in some of those settings on being able to just read from the page, but there, there are other things that are, that are not addressed and yet known. And so it's, it's just really interesting. And I, I definitely have a, much better understanding and appreciation for it now. Mm. So did your singing journey begin through tuition from your mother? Yes, <laughs> yes. So in a very, very intimate setting, for sure. So my mother is, as you sort of have alluded, she's a musician. She's an Indian classical musician, a Carnatic musician. So that's the South Indian classical tradition. And um, on the one hand, I grew up with this world-renowned musician But I think because we were growing up in sort of Minnesota specifically, and I wasn't growing up in India, that was a part of my experience, but not always. Like I remember going to um, the local department store, the big department store here in the US, which is called Target. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's kind of a cultural (laughs) phenomenon. (laughs) Great. So Target is Minnesotan, actually. We watch a lot of American TV. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So it goes both ways, the love for the two countries or or something. (laughs) Maybe you're making fun of us when you watch us, our TV. I don't know. That's that's quite likely. (laughs) There's plenty of modern family and friends binge watching here. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, so Target is actually Minnesotan. So we have even more Targets than the average state. (laughs) Claim to fame. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, one of our only. But we're, we're very proud of it. (laughs) um yeah so we would go to the big super target near our house and I remember at some point when I was a um when I was in my childhood that (laughs) turns out that the manager of that store was like a huge fan of my mom's you know he was sort of a white American so I'm not really sure how he'd how exactly he'd come across Carnatic music but he was a big fan so the first time we were doing our grocery shopping there he like brought her cd and asked her to sign it or something like that but for the most part it was it was was very nice and it was it was a i I thought a little strange but you know they struck up a really cool friendship (laughs) it's a bit random and a target you know the manager of that um 
maybe they were selling the CD there. I'm not really not sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe you got a sample. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Maybe that's what they. No, I don't. I don't think they play Carnatic music over the loudspeakers. But I'll have to check next time I'm there. Uh, but you know, I mean, like. Culturally speaking, there are a lot of pockets in the U.S. that have these really, really strong South Asian diasporic communities. Mm. In my state, it's very, very tight and close knit. I would say I think it's an incredible, like incredibly supportive community of you know people I would call aunties and uncles, even though they're not my family. But that being said, it's pretty small relative to other parts of the U.S. You know, we're not we're not necessarily known for having an overwhelming amount of Indians here. We in fact, it's like, you know, overwhel- overwhelmingly white, you know, where I'm from is the Midwest. Mm. So I grew up very aware of being different, I would say. Um, but there were at the same time, a lot of people who made me feel special for it, or didn't necessarily make a big deal out of that. And I think in some ways, because we didn't have that many people, we had this just, we, we really stoked the cultural fire. And it was very important in my family, especially, but in other families to have that cultural connection and to to feel a part of, you know, a vital and vibrant diaspora. So that's kind of the interesting thing about having learned Indian music and, of course, being you know part of this family of Indian musicians, or at least having one other Indian musician in the family is that she had this sort of outstage presence in my life and, you know, internationally touring and all of these really exciting things. And she was really established within Minnesota and the cultural community here and working with artists of different backgrounds and doing collaborative projects. You know, she doesn't just do sort of only traditional settings for concerts. But I think it would have been very different to grow up as the daughter of sort of a famous musician in India as opposed to Minnesota, aside from, the, again, the, the average <laughs> manager of Target knowing her music. But that, was not, that wasn't an everyday occurrence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would have been a very different experience. You said somewhere you were a disciple of your mother and you've been learning Carnatic music for, for 18 years, passing on a tradition through the family from mother to daughter. Is that quite common in Carnatic mm. music? Is it quite an oral tradition in that sense? It is definitely an oral tradition of what is called guru to sishya, guru being teacher, as you're probably familiar, and sishya means disciple. Mm. And that guru sishya passing on of the tradition is incredibly valuable. And when you can kind of trace that lineage is also sort of a special like commentary that people really prize that. So, for example, my... Um, Gurus, 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 guru, going back about seven, eight <laughs> generations of gurus, is one of the principal composers that we celebrate in Carnatic music, Sri Muttaswami Dikshadar, who lived in the 18th and 19th centuries and has created um, you know, a body of work that we sort of principally draw from. I, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't say exactly, but probably 300, 400 compositions, so really wow. prolific. Um at least we ascribe those to him. But because, again, sort of, you know, this isn't score notation. If there are any things notated, it's it's much more skeletal in nature. It's, it doesn't give the full picture. So in that way, your lineage becomes quite significant because then it becomes, you know, who did you learn these pieces from? So my guru's guru, my mother's guru, is was considered sort of an authority on his compositions because of that lineage because she sort of can directly trace it back to him. But um, yeah, it becomes an interesting point. I mean, certainly a point of pride for me, but also 
if we want to think about sort of elitism and other difficult topics with music, I think that sometimes that lineage question can be something kind of like that. And that also gets into access, right? So, so I do think that these discussions of access aren't just limited to, you know, non-oral traditions. I think that they exist in oral traditions as well. But that being said, this, this is a very, very special prized relationship, the one from guru to shishya. And in the case of mother-daughter having that sort of familial connection, there's definitely sort of a dynastical trend in Carnatic music where <laughs> a lot of the prominent musicians of today are the children and grandchildren of other prominent musicians. In my mom's case, she's the first musician in our family. So she didn't she didn't really, you know, come from the background that some of her closest colleagues and peers did. But my grandparents were super, super passionate listeners. And my grandmother had learned some music as well and has a beautiful voice. But no one was a professional musician before my mother. So in a lot of ways, you know, I have privilege that she did not have precisely by being her daughter. And I'm very aware of that and wanting to think about how can we spread that further, you know? It's interesting because in a business sense, that would be called nepotism. But in the music, <laughs> it has a very different reputation to it as mm-hmm, an idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, there's a, as part of the guru sishya um, relationship, there used to be this system of learning, which has kind of fallen out of vogue now. I know a few people who've done it, and they're really amazing. Um, but it's called gurukula, and it's where you live with your guru, actually. So the, the student would travel to the guru's house and, and be a part of the family, be a part of the household. So I guess in a way, you know, as as the daughter of my guru, I have been practicing gurukula all of these yeah. years by living with my guru. But unfortunately, gurukula is sort of a declining trend because it is a really hard thing, right? To, can you imagine giving up, you know, sort of renouncing your whole life and just to go live <laughs> with your guru for 10, 20 years? I mean, that's really, that's really commitment. Right? <laughs> and it also really flies in the face of the current trend away from even uh, touching in, in uh, music education because of, yeah. you know, what's yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. With, with yeah, that, absolutely. the reputation of, of close contact between teacher and student. Right, right. When you first said that, I was thinking of coronavirus and you don't want to be <laughs> in contact. But yeah, more seriously, it really, yeah, yeah I don't, I don't think that, I mean, that's really, and that is, and there's definitely, you know, we have to consider these things. I mean, I think that I'm not somebody who would say that the olden ways are always the best ways, because I think <laughs> that there are a lot of, I think we know of a lot of people who've, who've suffered because of these models of power and structure that didn't allow students to speak up. And I definitely think that, you know, Guru's word is considered sacred in, mm, in the yeah. Indian culture. And that's really, really beautiful. But that can be difficult if you're in situations where you have sort of impure Gurus and people who are corrupt and, and for whatever reasons are, are trying to exploit their students. So it is really difficult. It is really, it was really complicated. I didn't know much about the training that was given to teachers, but I'd heard in the UK, but I'd heard a little bit about um, when you're doing this kind of, these sort of safeguarding principles. I think that's the term that you use for it. And Yeah, it'll be like a, an afternoon. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you, and I mean, and it's, they make it probably quite clear what are the boundaries, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah, it's it's interesting what your responsibility for care towards a, a student is, mm. especially if they're particularly young, you know, kind of under 13, say. Um, what is your responsibility of care over um, an eight-year-old who 
who falls and, and, and grazes their knee in the playground as you're walking out, you know, you're leaving the mm. building. Uh, they're an eight-year-old. They, they might just need a hug. But if you if you touch a child, then arguably you're much more at risk of, of any any uh, mm. legal action, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it's, it's, it, we're, we're in a kind of sticky position at the moment. And you could, ask, you could also argue that that's, it's neglect not to hug the child. So it's, mm. uh, it's, it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But certainly, yeah. literally on the other end of the spectrum from living with your tutor. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it. <laughs> Truthfully. <laughs> definitely gone a different route with your higher education haven't you with um <laughs> in a good way in a good way <laughs> uh, i've kind of taken a circuitous route i think is the word that you're looking for <laughs> and it's uh not entirely yeah not necessarily the opposite of funneled into a place i think one would say. <laughs> well i can relate to that so <laughs> um because you, you went to i mean do, do people in the know call it soas the school so of has, oriental yes, right. african yes. is it african or asian african studies um yes oriental and yeah. african and i think they sort of issue the the acronym now because it's a bit problematic yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's ironic that the most kind of progressive uh kind of world inclusive mm. institution for music in the uk has like yeah. the, the least favorable well, acronym. It, comes, <laughs> it comes by its roots actually which were quite which are quite problematic and i didn't actually know until i was you know well into my degree right. <laughs> the school was founded as uh as a place to train colonial officers to basically be better at their job of you know wow. handling the natives as it that's were. mad Yes, like yeah. This, this so it's a complete switch of goal and reputation. That's mad. Exactly. And so, I mean, I think they have done an incredible job sort of contending with that. And there's a, you know, you can't walk five feet and so as without someone using the word decolonize somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of that sort of place. But also, I mean, they, they truly mean it. But yeah, it is really yeah. interesting. It, that was a kind of, I was, I, I sort of had to have a reckoning at some point with that. Here I was at the school that was founded to basically keep my ancestors in line, if I may be so, you know, open to say that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you have to think about sort of what are the sort of neo-colonial actions that we take. And I think that the study of music and the construction of, of a history and a dialogue about it, uh, you know, with any as with any kind of cultural activity, when you're creating the dialogue and creating the context we use and the terminology we use to describe it, you have to be very, very careful and very, very aware of your positionality, you know, your background and where you come from with this. Mm. And I loved my time at SOAS, but sometimes it was almost surreal that, you know, all of my professors who were instructing me in the study of ethnomusicology all of them are white. 
Mm-hmm. And that's not the case with every discipline at SOAS, but it is the case with the music department. And that was a bit of a shock for me, you know, um, to I remember to looking that up that. and finding it really strange, like really surprising, considering its you reputation. You wouldn't expect, yeah. but you can't help but feel a little bit like an object of study when you are enrolling as a student of color hmm. to study from professors who have made it their life goal to study this art form that is basically your existence. <laughs> you know, it was a very, very... Um, it was, a, it was a complicated relationship for sure. And I didn't have any sort of scholarship background with Carnatic music. I mean, I use this word um, with some trepidation because I think <laughs> this idea that, uh, and there were, there were, and there were professors who, who would agree with me there that, you know, knowledge is not simply in the head, but that there is embodied knowledge and that the, the field of epistemology itself is very important in thinking about well, just because people have written about it for years and years doesn't necessarily say mean that they know more than the people who are practitioners of it. So that was an interesting thing for me to reckon with. I found an interesting niche for myself of being almost like a translator of sorts, working between Indian scholarship and Western scholarship and finding the value in both. And it was interesting to see that you know, a lot of the Indian scholars had been dismissed, actually, in my particular you know, feel that I was doing very, very specific research in Western scholars, including people who were directly kind of advising me, had sort of dismissed some of the scholarship that was happening in India. And I can understand to some extent why, because there were some, you know, there was language that was not only biased, but language that would often say that, you know, this is almost, you know, God's ordained music or something like that. You know, they were very fond of the music they were describing, (laughs) but I didn't see it completely without value for that reason. And likewise, I would say in India that I think that, um, you know, a lot of the critiques that have been written of musical practices there, but also cultural practices, they see them as very negative portrayals. And I think that people of my grandparents' generation don't believe that the West represents them fairly. Oh, okay. So it was just a really, really interesting sort of microcosm of the larger navigation I do in my music to do it in this research sphere, to be to be thinking about, okay, well, Indian scholars don't really like some of the work that's being done in the West, and the Western scholars don't really think the work that's being done in India is valid. Of course, these are blanket statements. Not everyone feels this way. But, you know, being able to sort of mediate between the two and see value in both approaches even though this was a very very specific sort of research uh, you know really really I would say almost esoteric topic that I was looking at I think it was kind of you know emblematic of the larger conversations we need to be having between cultures but certainly between you know musicians but I think even globally to to really work towards an understanding would mean for both sides to kind of compromise some ground and maybe admit that the other side has something of value to say. It's a fascinating idea that the academia and the performance of Carnatic music may be separated to some degree, but the idea that the musicians performing this may know less than the people studying it from the kind of third person, <laughs> it's a is a very strange concept. And I suppose speaks to a diff- um, a separation of, of mind and body and kind of like you were saying kind of embodied embodied knowledge Mm, mm -hmm. i think what you were saying that really speaks uh, there was a quote in your article for i care if you listen um and you said i have always firmly believed that more music leads to greater understanding and when i read that i I didn't quite understand what you mean but maybe now i i do (laughs) Mm. (laughs) certainly certainly in your role i mean 
just going back a little bit, like you're in such a fascinating position as well, having been the daughter of a very prominent Carnatic musician, and then to be also stepping over to the other side of the globe, as it were, <laughs> and viewing it from afar through academia and through through it as the study of other rather than mm. the kind of native study. Mm-hmm. That is a, in that sense, you really occupy a very unique space to view them equally. Mm, I think you're right. I think I was doing that kind of intuitively with having these two bodies of knowledge when it came to music in the sense that I started adding dynamics, you know, dynamic markings into my Carnotic scripts (laughs) or adding in uh, Carnotic uh, little ideas and notes to myself in my Western scores. Even simple things like I would say to my mother, yeah, the Thordi Raga, which is a very, very traditional Carnatic Raga that has a lot of the gamakams. Those are the oscillations between notes and very, very specific grammar. Well, its plain notes are the Phrygian mode. You know, just just working in that sphere. But definitely, I think that the that academic experience at SOAS really helped me figure out how much I respect the the critical approach, if we can call it that, and at the same time, how important my prior and continuing experiences with this embodied knowledge is, and that I will never want to give up one for the other, but that I have to have both in my life. Hmm, yeah. And did you find that that experience at SOAS then affected your composition itself? Oh yes, tremendously. <laughs> it was I I'm I'm laughing because I have absolutely loved both years and both institutions that I've had, but going from SOAS and going from London of course, but going from SOAS to a conservatoire in Manchester was quite a jump, I would say. <laughs> it was it was just really interesting that um I, I recall an anecdote that one of my friends shared with me that he was walking by some practice rooms in SOAS. And someone was like practicing Western classical piano. And then the minute that they realized that someone was walking by that room, they immediately changed to like Cuban jazz. Um, <laughs> like they didn't want to be caught <laughs> playing Western classical. So that was almost the attitude we had. I think that that anecdote of someone quickly changing to Cuban jazz <laughs> characterizes the attitude at, at SOAS. And then to go completely to a conservatoire where you would be hearing really mostly one type or two types of music as you walk down the hallways of the practice rooms was very telling. But I'm very glad to have gotten that grounding and that research grounding and have that year of sort of critically analyzing this thing that was very close to me in a familial sense, you know, and then to go and do the self-analysis that is composition. I wonder if we could talk about your piece, Numbers, that you wrote for <laughs> National Youth Choir last year. Um, it's certainly taken off for you, I guess. <laughs> um, but it's really a really fun piece. Really not expected. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a really fun piece. And uh, it's, it's got these like lovely cross rhythms at the beginning. And I, I wondered if that was uh, 
a kind of a Carnatic influence at all or if I have no idea of the depths of rhythmic intricacies that <laughs> come from kind of conical and things like that. <laughs> well, you said it exactly correctly, conical. Um, yes, it definitely relates to that. So the the, the cross rhythms um, sort of between threes and fours comes into some of the ideas that we have in Carnatic music, but is also sort of situated in the, again, the sort of doorway that I live in between the worlds. Mm. Because... Um, at some level, some people would probably say that we don't have polyrhythms in Indian music, as in that we don't have rhythms happening at this, the, the, hmm, how should I put this? With our rhythmic intensity and intricacy that we have, it is about a certain clarity. Mm. So I would say that a certain clarity of intent drives it. So we do have the cross rhythms and polyrhythms in the sense that the the hand, which does the, the tapping, the thalam, will be going consistently and we will be subdividing it in crazy ways. I mean, <laughs> ways that aren't really considered crazy and the ways that are considered crazy for, you know, if you're working with a mridangam artist, that is the, the person who plays the lead percussion, double-headed mridangam instrument, mm. when they're doing their conical and when they're when they're doing the the sort of the height of rhythmic intensity in, in in Carnatic music, that will have polyrhythms and cross rhythms, but the musicians will be working together to come towards a sort of homophonic sound, if that makes sense, or even a, a monophonic sound. So the thalam will be going, and then you'll be having that against that. And it'll be, you know, it'll be happening. The rhythm is very, we will acknowledge that it's against it, but we don't want the two rhythm artists to be playing like different things. Like that would be considered <laughs> a mistake of sorts or that we would, we would be thinking that the one rhythm artist didn't anticipate the other artists move mm. that well. Mm. So there's this idea of going, moving towards a kind of united sound. I, so I guess that's why I would say that polyrhythms per se aren't necessarily sought after <laughs> they might more mm. be the result of other things going on um but the way the rhythm builds up in that section is absolutely taken from carnatic music so i've got subdivisions of threes and then sixes and, and building up the intensity within them and then i've got the four that's being maintained so i would say that approach is so the, the idea of having the two together is definitely i would say western um, but the approach of something being maintained and then something kind of going in a divergent path is absolutely Carnatic music because the maintaining of that four is the thalam and then the intensifying of the threes of that, that subdivide further and further is that conical on top of it. So I hope that explains it a little bit better. It probably made it more confusing, honestly. No, no, that's great. <laughs> I find it fascinating. It's, I um I came across, I don't know if you've heard of him, BC Manjunath. I don't know if I'm butchering the name on Instagram. And he makes he does, quite a few videos, right? Yeah, of, yes, yeah. I've I've heard about him. Yes, absolutely. You know, just with the clapping and, and the voice and the, the subdivisions and the the metric modulations just blow my mind every time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's so interesting because this is, I mean, again, it's the same idea of, you know, when I first came across changing time signatures in spores, I found it pretty baffling because mm. we have this concept of the thalam never changes, the thing that's happening in the hand. And this is very specific to Carnatic right. music in specific. You don't actually find, say, Hindustani North Indian classical music has different principles and rules regarding this. Mm. But in our system, you cannot change the thalam once the piece starts it stays the same for the entire piece the thalam is like a metronome mm. that doesn't stop right. so when there are but there are rhythm changes we're very aware of that right when you're hearing the conical when that alters it has to be against the thalam so what that means is if you're doing if you're in like a something equivalent of four four and you're doing a principle based on nines, you know, very, very common number and a valued one in Indian music because of this idea of things potentially happening three times and nine is divisible by three, etc. Um, so if you're doing something in, in nines, uh, for example, um, you have to make sure that you've calculated it such that it can also fit into that 4-4, four, four, if that makes sense. Hmm. Maybe let me use two terms here, and that might help illuminate what, what is the approach with rhythm and mm. Indian music. We've got a term called gati and we've got a term called nade. So by the way, this is like super advanced stuff. So, so, um, <laughs> so I've got like super into the weeds. Huh? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is on you. You asked the question. <laughs> yeah. It's a brilliant question. So, so it deserves a, an answer with detail. Um, gati and nade are these two concepts. Now, I would say, uh, I should say at the start that um, Indian musicians really disagree on which one is considered gati and which one is considered nade. So basically some people would say gati is the definition that say my school uses for nade. So it gets into, okay. it gets confusing, but they are distinct ideas. And hmm. just to say that one of them is about changing the, uh, subdivision. So if you're in a Right, very clearly I went from, say, semi-quavers to sort of a triplet quaver division. Right, very clearly I went from, say, semi-quavers to sort of a triplet quaver division. Mm, right? We could mm. agree on that. And gati, on the other hand, refers to grouping. So it would be like very simply going, So what I did there is I used takita, which is the three, but it's just had to do with the grouping of the notes. I was, I didn't change the underlying, um, it, you know, I guess it wouldn't be like a metric modulation, right? I didn't change the underlying tuplet. And I guess a little bit the problem here is we don't have the vocabulary exactly to say this in Western music precisely because of it, you know, that shows a difference in priorities, whereas Gatti mm. and Narde are sort of foundational principles. These are simple principles that I just, I mean, rather, I should say, I demonstrated them simply, but they can go to extremely complicated levels. So you mm. could be in a situation where your sort of original pace was taka dimi, taka junu, taka dimi, taka junu, but then you've decided to go into a subdivision of taka takita, taka takita, taka takita, taka takita, which is fives. And then 
further on top of that, you may be this so taka takita, taka takita, taka demi, taka demi, taka demi, You decided to <laughs> change your grouping back to fours, but you're in fives. But the right. original thing is fours, if that made any sense. Yes. Um, yes. So, or, or you know, you could you could be doing the subdivision of seven, and then originally you were in four, but you decided to subdivide to seven, and then you're grouping them in threes. So <laughs> suddenly you're in a, you know, a world of multiple <laughs> layers. <laughs> but I would say that, yeah, I mean... Any Carnatic musician who's interacting with the rhythm world in the improvisation section of the music, so in the, particularly a section we call Kalpana Swarams, which is with Kalpana being imagination, um, they are a whiz at arithmetic because they are doing <laughs> these calculations that I described to you of right, making sure yeah. of doing this can fancy things in the moment and making wow. sure that it all kind of adds up. So, so yeah, I would definitely say that when I'm really in shape, my arithmetic is particularly good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's been really, really nice to talk to you, Shreethi. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And this was just such a lovely conversation. Thank you.